You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program, which spotlights and elevates the difference makers in cancer treatment and care. Learn more at www.yourcancer.org. On October 17th, the Washington Post Live hosted Chasing Cancer, a live event featuring the nation's most influential cancer warriors, trailblazers, and advocates. In this segment, three influential cancer trailblazers who are on the front lines of the war against the disease discuss the most pressing issues affecting patients, from innovative new treatments to drug policy to advancements in early detection and prevention. Let's listen. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. I'm just delighted to introduce my first panel. Um, I'm Laurie McGinley, a health reporter here at the Washington Post. Joining me are Doug, uh, Dr. Doug, Douglas Lowy, acting director of the National Cancer Institute, Ellen Siegel, chairperson and founder of Friends of Cancer Research, and seated next to me is Dr. Richard Pazder, director of the Oncology Center of Excellence at the FDA. A reminder to everyone who is following this, we'd love to have you join in the conversation. And if you have a question for any of our guests, please tweet them to us using the hashtag postlive. So let's start with a few questions about cancer prevention and early detection. Dr. Lowe, your research led to the development of the HPV vaccine, which prevents cer cervical cancer and several other cancers as well. And yet the, the vac vaccination rate is still somewhat low in the United States. Could you tell us where things are and how to get the rate up? Certainly, Lori. It, first, uh, it is a pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate you and the Washington Post trying to highlight uh, prevention and uh, early detection of cancer in this particular session. I should also point out that I have never been the opening act for a rock band. And so <laughs> it's, really, <laughs> it's, it's really something. Uh, but getting to HPV, the uptake of the HPV vaccine has not been as optimal as one would have uh, hoped or expected. But the current data, the latest results, actually are very encouraging in terms of the impact of the vaccine on HPV infection. In young women who are under 20, in the last 10 years where there's been measurement between 2006 when the vaccine was first approved and 2016, there's been more than an 80% decrease in the prevalence of the HPV types that are targeted by the vaccine. So I think that we can look forward to substantial reductions in precancer, which has already been seen, as well as in the various cancers that are attributable to HPV infection. So we've gone from uh, three shots for HPV to two shots. Are you going to get us to one shot? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, we actually have uh, data uh, from a clinical trial uh, conducted in Costa Rica suggesting that one, uh, uh, it, one dose might be sufficient. But this is not enough to change standard of care. 
but we are in the midst of conducting another large trial in Costa Rica to test uh, Gardasil 9 as well as uh, the uh, uh, GlaxoSmithKline vaccine Cervix, whether one dose would be as good as two doses. Uh, and it remains to be seen. We are down in Costa Rica because uh, the, the, they have uh, the highest uh, incidence of cervical cancer when the NCI first went down there uh, among women. Uh, and so it's a very good place and it also has an impact. While the NCI has been down in Costa Rica, the incidence and mortality from cervical cancer has gone down by about 50%. When will you know the answer to whether we can go to one? Uh, we expect probably 2024. It's a very big trial uh, because uh, we have good interventions, uh, and so you're not allowed to have a placebo uh, in that uh, trial. And so you need to uh, first vaccinate a large number of young women and then see whether or not they develop infection. So it will take probably uh, another four and a half years. I'd like to ask you all what you're most excited about in terms of the advances in cancer over the last few years, where we've really seen a sea change in terms of the kinds of treatments that are available. Dr. Pastor, could you start on that? Well, uh, this year is my 40th year as an oncologist and 20 years at the FDA, so I have a, a lifetime of experience. And I started in oncology when there were about 30 oncology drugs, and now the number is, I can't even count the number of drugs what we have approved uh, uh, in the past 10 years, so to speak. Uh, but I think the major advances have occurred basically in our understanding of the mechanisms of disease and how our body fights against the disease. So we have targeted therapies uh, specifically aimed at molecular targets on, uh, on the neoplastic cells, the cancer cells, as well as a greater understanding of tumor and the immunology of of these diseases. Uh, so we have a whole new class of drugs, uh, such as the PD-1 drugs uh, the pro, uh, and uh, CAR T cells that really have had an, a tremendous effect on patients. And these are so, drugs that, that target the immune system, correct. not and the they, cancer? Correct. And they really act by turning your own body's immune system on to the cancer to make your body fight the cancer, so to speak, rather than conventional cytotoxic drugs, conventional chemotherapy that is directed at the tumor specifically. And what do you see in the next five to ten years, and what are the, what are the your greatest uh, concerns or frustrations about getting to where you want to go? Uh, what I'd like to see is a greater, uh, really, cooperation in the pharmaceutical industry uh, of developing drugs. Uh, rather than a competitive spirit, which I think is important, there also has to be a degree of collaboration. Uh, for example, we have many PD-1 drugs that are quite similar. Uh, I would hope that p companies would work together in the next generation of these immunological therapies rather than purely a competitive spirit. Well, and you have, I've seen you actually um, lecture and uh, maybe yell at is too strong a word, <laughs> drug companies about um, their, their tendency with immunotherapy to do duplicative trials and produce redundant drugs. Um, what can you do about that? You, can you because you don't order the pharma? Well, there's only so much we could do at the FDA. We can't 
prevent somebody from developing a drug. We, we try to uh, encourage clinical trials that will enable pharmaceutical companies to collaborate with each other, such as platform trials, such as the use of common controls, uh, so they could get uh, a common mechanism of testing drugs. Uh, but this is an, an area of concern because we don't need duplicative efforts. Uh, I have repeatedly stated that you know patients are not the resource of a pharmaceutical uh, company. They really are a national resource, an international resource, and we have to be protective of that resource and use patients or their, their participation in clinical trials has to be done in a thoughtful way rather than just enrolling patients to answer uh, a relatively mundane question. Ellen, what about you? What have you been most excited about in the last few years and what do you see going forward? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for this forum today and I'm honored to sit among heroes, Doug and Rick, people who have made a huge difference in the life of patients and have dedicated their entire life to cancer. So uh, an enormous uh, gratitude. What I am excited about now is that we're seeing curative therapies. We're seeing therapies that actually can cure people, and that's incredibly important. And also, therapies now that are targeted for individual cancers. So those are really important things because before we were treating lung disease or breast, or and now we know we have a better idea of these targeted medicines because of the investment in research and because of the, of the her, her, of what Rick has done at the FDA to get these um, uh, treatments out to patients, but they're also less toxic. And also the patient voice is now very, very important. The idea of what is important to a patient. Patients all want cures, they want treatments that will help them, but they also want quality of life. And there are major changes, so I'm quite excited about what's happening. We still have a lot to do. Dr. Lowy, what about you? Well, first, let me just say that we still have many, many, many too many people who die from cancer every year in the United States, about 600,000. On the other hand, we are making a lot of progress. It is hard to prioritize, but I'll give you three uh, examples. And it's, uh, first, I would start with the treatment advances that both Dr. Pastor and uh, Alan Siegel have been talking about. But what I take away from them, in addition, is a change in attitude about cancer and optimism that cancer is potentially treatable. We have the example for, of uh, former President Carter, who four years ago had melanoma metastatic to his brain, and he got treated with one of the new immuno-oncology drugs, and now, just like every other 94-year-old, he goes and builds houses. You know, <laughs> so a second uh, area of advance is uh, a, a, a very effective treatment for hepatitis C virus infection. This is epidemic in the United States. There's more than a 95% cure rate now from the HCV antivirals. Uh, and we really could, in principle, uh, really dramatically decrease the incidence of hepatitis C virus infection. And the prediction is that if we didn't do that, the 
incidence and mortality from liver failure and liver cancer in the 2030s would go up dramatically. So this is another uh, example. And then the third example is the enthusiasm among cancer researchers. At the NCI, we have, over the last five years, had a 50% in the number of grant applications for cancer research. This is about 10 times higher than all other areas of the, of the NIH. And this, I think, is really a reflection of the optimism that the cancer research community has of the opportunities in cancer research. So those are three. Um, circling back to where we started, can you tell us a little bit about what the efforts are, what you have learned from developing, helping develop the HPV vaccine, and whether there are other cancers that could be prevented by vaccines? Sure. Well, the first vaccine was the hepatitis B virus vaccine, which uh, hepati uh, hepatitis B virus infection is a cause of liver cancer, and this is really a big problem, particularly in Asia. And there we see in Taiwan already a substantial decrease in the uh, incidence uh, and mortality from liver cancer as a result of HBV vaccination. And this will now be seen worldwide. Uh, in, a, in addition, the principles of the HPV vaccine, which really are figuring out how to make a vaccine that has a very high immunogenicity rate, uh, are being applied in other situations. For example, with Epstein-Barr virus, which causes uh, a number of different uh, cancers in the United States, but especially in Africa as well, uh, the most common uh, uh, cancer of children in Africa, Burkitt lymphoma. And the use of a uh, so-called repetitive structure is very analogous to what's being done with the HPV vaccine. That's research by colleagues in the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases uh, at the NIH, and the hope is to go into clinical trials uh, sometime in the, next, uh, in the next few months. But that's just one example. Laura, can I make a comment on this? Because this is obviously really, really important. But there are a lot of diseases that we have no idea how to prevent intervene and to treat. So while we have to, the goal, the gold standard is to prevent an early detection so we can treat and, and not have patients suffer. But there are over 500,000 people that will be diagnosed with cancer this year. Over a million will die. And many of them, we have no idea how they even get the cancer, blood cancers, glioblastoma. So we have to be careful and we have to do prevention, early detection, but we can't stop treating patients who are being treated right now. Well, that actually brings me to the next thing I want to ask you about, which is there's um, a new book out by a Columbia professor named Dr. Azra Raza, who says that the current approach on cancer isn't working, that the drugs are too targeted to the very sickest, and that they focus, uh, that they cost too much and they don't work all that well. And then she's calling for a major shift to prevention and early detection. Is she being too negative, or does she have a point, or somewhere in between? Well, I'd like to answer that, okay? And I, I think people, ha and I'd like to follow up with what Ellen has just said, because I completely agree with it. Uh, 
prevention is obviously an important issue, okay, but we have to understand that we also have patients and a population of patients that have advanced disease, okay, and they, are, they do require treatment. Uh, the other very important thing is that although drugs are tested frequently initially in a very advanced population where the uh, response rates, where the efficacy may be rather modest, they quickly go into earlier stages of the disease where there effects are greater, as well as going into the adjuvant therapy and the neoadjuvant treating patients that are at high risk after curative therapies that may have relapsed, okay? And these offer a chance of cure, for example. So, you know, I look at this as more as a continuum of drug development rather than basically saying that there's prevention here and basically the treatment of advanced disease. I think it's also important to realize that uh, we really have to address people's problems that are here at our doorstep, so to speak. I think that echoes what Ellen has Ellen, well, how, do, how, do, how, do the, how does the patient view this? Everybody wants to prevent cancer or wants a, a treatments that are curative. However, that's not the real world. In the real world, where people are being diagnosed, many times we have better treatments that are personalized, that are better for treatments, and their chances of responding are much higher, thanks to the bravery and what Rick Pazder has done at the uh, FDA and what the basic research and what has happened at the NCI. But patients want a treatment that will work. They want a treatment that will work for them. They're very interested. They're, they're not just getting lung cancer or breast cancer. They're getting specific genomic diseases or getting tested. They want their best shot. And they want to live and they want quality of life. And they want to know options because it's not all the same. You know, we used to treat lung cancer. We used to treat breast cancer. It's different now. So they have to have the best opportunity for them because they all want the same thing. They want to live, they want quality, and they want to be with their families and be productive, and they don't want to suffer during the treatment. Dr. Pastor, could you talk a little bit about the whole debate that's going on about using expedited procedures at the FDA to approve cancer drugs, and there are many people who applaud it and are very happy about it. And then um, there has been some criticism that maybe, um, as I mentioned before, the drugs um, are not as effective. Um, and I'm just wondering, how do you how do you feel about that when you hear well, that? Well, I'm working on a, a, a um, an article, and the title of the article, which kind of summarizes my thoughts on this, is when science collides with drug development, the need for regulatory flexibility in the area of precision medicine. And I think what this echoes is really we have to be realistic that the measurement of overall survival, which many of these uh, uh, people want, basically, simply is not possible always with uh, the development of oncology drugs. Uh, and there are many reasons behind this. We're having smaller and smaller subpopulations of patients based on genetic markers, which just makes it impossible to do a survival study. Uh, many times the natural histories as well as the histories due to therapeutic interventions are now very prolonged. So to get the answer of an improvement in overall survival may take decades to really demonstrate or many, many years, and also the lack of equipoise in clinical trials. When we go into a randomized trial, frequently we have additional information preceding that uh, that 
started the randomized trials. And people, when they know a particular therapy may have a much higher response rate than conventional therapy, would not want to go on a clinical trial. Would so not there's a lack of equipoise. There's a lack of equipoise there. And we've had many discussions over the years with patient groups, and they look at other endpoints also of beam benefit. For example, when a tumor shrinks by 50% or by 30%, whatever, uh, people view that as benefit to them. That's how oncology is practiced in the real world. When you have a rapidly progressive tumor and that tumor is then, the progression of that is delayed, people would consider that of benefit to the patients. So I think as we get into a very dynamic environment where many oncology drugs are being developed and really the natural history of many diseases are changed, we have to demonstrate the appropriate degree of regulatory flexibility. I always say the purpose of the FDA is really to guarantee that we have safe and effective therapies going out to the patients. It's a government agency responsible to the patients, okay, not to the preservation of a p-value in a statistical analysis, so to speak, uh, but really it has to be geared to what the patients need at a, spe a specific time. And that degree of regulatory flexibility has to be there in an area where we're seeing a rapidly a rapid progression of science. I feel strongly that I need to react to that. Uh, first of all, these critics are not understanding science and nor the patient needs. When you have a disease with an unmet medical need, you're not going to wait 10 to 15 years till it's perfect. You have to get these treatments that are likely to help you, and if one doesn't help you have another. Many of these patients are living three to five years. They're seeing their children graduate. They're seeing birthday parties. They're, they're, they're doing things with high quality. They're going back to work. No patient with a, a diagnosis of cancer, particularly of one of these deadly ones where we really don't have effective treatments, is going to wait for a p-value or survival benefit that may take 10 years. So they want treatments that are likely to work for them and FDA is putting out uh, treatments that are likely. They have standards. There is a standard of safety and efficacy. They're not just putting drugs out there that don't work. Now, many of them don't work as well as we'd like to, but many of them are working and patients are living longer and they're living longer with better quality life and that's a really important thing. And we've heard this repeatedly from patients that are facing advanced disease, that they're willing to take a risk here. Okay, and it's not going to be perfect all the time, and that's why some of the drugs come off, but they're willing to take that risk, and it's a joint risk that we share with patients. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the elephant in the room, which you are not responsible for, but um, it still, I assume, affects you, which is high drug prices and high cancer drug prices. Dr. Lowy, how does it affect you? Does it affect you, how you do your job? Well, our primary responsibility is to try to develop evidence for new interventions. And we uh, specifically don't set drug prices. On the other hand, uh, if we make advances which uh, paradoxically increase health disparities because those advances are not available to all people, this really is a societal issue which uh, needs to be dealt with. And clearly there's just been so many high profile issues of how, uh, with many uh, suggestions of how to try to deal with the high cost. And 
uh, at the risk of making things even worse, where I see the future is we're going to be having combination drug treatment and combination treatments with two or three expensive drugs will make things even more complicated than with, uh, than with one. Well, that's interesting because the, we are seeing some increased disparities in patient access to some of these therapies, um, especially, for instance, on something like the CAR-T therapies for blood cancers. There are issues about how much Medicaid will pay, how much Medicare will pay, and that's causing some problems among, among patients in, in terms of patient access. Certainly, the issue of financial toxicity, bankruptcy, mm -hmm. et cetera, are problems that are front and center with far too many patients who have cancer. You know, the dictum, your medicine or your mortgage, you know, as a dilemma is something that really is very unfortunate. Dr. Pastor, how does it affect you, or does it affect you? Well, we don't make decisions based on cost, okay? Uh, in fact, I really have no idea as far as the exact dollar amount that the drugs are going to be marketed at uh, when we approve a drug. So we're, we're somewhat agnostic to the issue of in making a regulatory decision, the cost of the drugs. We simply look at safety and efficacy. Nevertheless, this is a major problem that's facing oncology. Uh, does anybody have the answer to this? I don't think anyone has the answer to it. I think it really requires a continued discussion about what are the value of comparing different drugs in a different setting. I think that's a very important issue. But these become very complicated issues uh, because no, none of the drugs have the exact same clinical trial. They frequently fit niche patient populations. So it's a very difficult question to answer. But from a regulatory point of view from the FDA, we're not looking at cost when we make a regulatory decision. Ellen, how did you get involved in cancer advocacy and, and how has the field changed over the last several decades? Well, my story is a personal story. My sister died of, of breast cancer at 40. She was diagnosed at 32. And um, she died of a bone marrow transplant, but she had a metastatic disease. And I will never forget um, going home, she was treated in North Carolina, telling her four-year-old daughter that she would never see her mother again. So that was extremely painful. We were very young and young children, and it was horrible. And I did what most people do. I started getting involved in raising money for cancer research at Duke and other places. And then I realized quickly that this problem isn't going to be solved at one place. It really needed a foundation and support for basic research and for translational research. And I served on the board of the National, Can uh, the National Cancer Advisory Board for six years, and Rick Klausner, who was the director at that point, asked me to form Friends for one year, and I said, well, what do you want? And everybody who knows Rick Klausner would say, I want, he said, I want 300 things. I said, no, tell me one thing you want. And he said, well, we need funding for research. But, and we, I did this now, it's 23 years later. However, I understand now that basically, the research and the foundation is urgent, but if it doesn't get to patients, and if it doesn't help patients, it doesn't work. And even the drug pricing, which is a huge problem, it is, the prices are too high, and patients are not getting access. But what we don't want is to stop the innovation and the precision medicine. What we want is not cheap drugs that don't work. We want drugs that will work for the patient, 
on the first time they get it. That's the continuum. So, um, so the advocacy that we have at Friends of Cancer Research is really about regulatory innovation, but we don't want things on the market. And thank God for Rick Pazder and the people at the FDA, they're not putting things on the market that don't work. There has to be a standard and we have to get them out to patients because if they're not out, they're not getting access and often they're getting ineffective treatments. Dr. Lowe, is it true you wanted to be a football player? Is that right? Uh, <laughs> this is actually true. Uh, when I was in high school, <laughs> I, was, uh, and I was a linebacker, and uh, my dream was to uh, actually be a quarterback. There were two problems that I had. First, I didn't have talent, and second, <laughs> I didn't have size. So I ended up doing cancer research instead. <laughs> and I, uh, I don't know, uh, I think I'm much better for it, thank it's you. Okay. <laughs> the world is better for it. And Dr. Pastor, you've talked um, uh, sometimes about your wife and her experience with ovarian cancer and how it's affected mm -hmm. you. Could you talk to us a little bit about well, that? Well, uh, my wife succumbed to cancer uh, about Four, well, four years ago in November, uh, and uh, really that experience was a really devastating experience, as one would imagine. Uh, I met my wife on my first day of my fellowship in medical oncology. Uh, we were treating a patient with uh, ovarian cancer, her and I. Uh, she was a nurse practitioner at that time in Chicago, where I was doing my training, and it's so ironic that she then developed ovarian cancer later on in her life. Uh, the story is one uh, that is very different when you are an oncologist and have a knowledge of the disease. Both my wife and I had a thorough knowledge of what the natural history of the disease was. Uh, you, it, I frequently stated it's like knowing the book, the story of the book, seeing the movie and seeing a movie that you had seen before because you know what the end result is going to be. And that you don't want to be at. You don't want to be in that movie, so to speak. Uh, but I think the appreciation that has given me is on drug toxicities. Uh, it's a much different thing about seeing toxicities written on a page, grade four toxicities, grade three toxicities, uh, rather than actually experiencing those toxicities. Uh, it's much different seeing the toxicities evolve in front of you, going to the emergency room, uh, where the emergency room staff knows you on a personal basis because you've been there so long or so many times before. Uh, the other thing that it, it really emphasizes is what we don't teach in oncology very well, and that is the process of end-stage disease and also the aftermath of cancer on the family, and that is the process of grieving. I never saw that addressed in medical school, and having had to experience it myself uh, was a very poignant aspect of my life and is one that I continues to experience. Do you, that think, they're, do you think they're teaching it now? Do you think that has I think it's better, but I don't think it is really uh, the optimal experience that anybody gets. Perhaps one has to live through it really to understand the, the full impact on one's life. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I could, I could sit and talk to you all all day, but um, thank you very much for um, coming to our conference. Um, the next panel will be um, headed by my colleague, Paige Cunningham. Thank you. Please stay seated. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.